Hello and welcome to episode 210 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Remember to follow Turkey Book Talk over at Twitter, X, Instagram and or Facebook. I'm also on Blue Sky if you're on there too. In this episode, we hear from Timur Hammond of Syracuse University, the author of Placing Islam, Geographies of Connection in 20th Century Istanbul, published by the University of California Press. The book is a sociological and historical study zooming in on the Istanbul district of Eyüp, tracing its changing character over the past century or so. Today, Eyüp is one of Istanbul's most important pilgrimage and tourism destinations, revered as the resting site of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, a companion of the Prophet Muhammad, who is believed to have fallen in the first Arab siege of Constantinople in the 7th century. Our conversation mostly looks at the sometimes surprising modern history and character of Eyüp as a district, including its industrial and commercial history, drawing on Timur Hammond's extensive research in the area. But before we get started, let me appeal once again for support. This podcast takes a lot of time and effort to prepare, edit and piece together. And I do need listeners support your support to be able to keep doing it. Since launching the podcast back in 2015, we've given a platform to researchers and authors of books related to Turkish history, politics, society, literature and the arts. Turkey Book Talk is completely independent with no institutional links, no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners like you. So if you are able to support, please consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Supporting on Patreon isn't just a nice thing to do, it also gets you some pretty good extras. Those extras include a terrific and now updated discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. As a member, you get a special code to use at the online checkout and you can use it to purchase any of hundreds of Turkey and Ottoman history titles, either as an old-fashioned physical book or as an e-book. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. And finally, to members, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now let's crack on with our conversation with Timur Hammond. I started by asking him to introduce Ayup as a district and where its historical resonance comes from. So I was born and raised outside of Turkey. Um, I have a family connection to Turkey and so I came back as a kid a couple of times, came back when I was in college and remembered going to a place called Pierre Loti to have tea one day and didn't really know anything about it except that I remember we took the ferry along the Golden Horn and you get off at the last stop and you'd walk up the hill and you had tea at this cafe sitting out on the side of a hill and see a remarkable panorama of Istanbul. And so I had was like, oh, okay, this is there's this place and didn't really know anything about the district except that it had this view of the rest of the city. Later on, as I you know started my graduate work and was writing a master's thesis about Orhan Pamuk's memoir, 
I came across Ayub again, and he, in a very similar kind of way, tells a story about his experience as a teenager getting on a ferry, probably in Karake or Galata, and taking the ferry up the Golden Horn to the last stop at Ayub and getting off in this district. And he calls it a sort of Turkish Eastern Muslim Disneyland. And so I was in graduate school and I was thinking, that doesn't seem quite right, or that it seemed a sort of incomplete story. And so kind of came to try to develop a dissertation project, in some sense, arguing with Pamuk and what I learned and what a lot of people who live in Istanbul already know. Ayup is one of the city's oldest districts. It, I mean, goes back to the Byzantine period, but it plays a really key role in the Ottoman history of Istanbul. Um, it is a site where a companion of the Prophet Muhammad, Halid bin Zayd Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, is buried. The miraculous rediscovery of his tomb sort of becomes this key moment in the Ottoman conquest of the city and what Chidem Kafis Giolos kind of wonderfully put as the transformation of Constantinople into Istanbul. And the district has this really long and rich history over the Ottoman centuries as a site of uh, devotional visits, as a site of state protocol, uh, as a site of imperial pleasure, as a site of late Ottoman industrialization, and continues to change over the course of the 20th century. And so the, the book is really an attempt to kind of document and describe some of the ways in which Ayup, on the one hand, has really been transformed in far-reaching ways over the course of the 20th century, but also to point to these really powerful and striking continuities in the importance and significance of this one place in a broader sort of constellation of Istanbul. Now, the book represents this kind of ethnographical modern history of, of Ayup, specifically focusing on its 20th century transformations. And it shows how the character of Ayup has changed and its identity has changed over time. It's not really fixed. Actually, like many people from different social groups assume they kind of see it as fixed in place with a particular identity that doesn't change. And it's been that way for generations going back. But you show that it's actually obviously very different. It's more complicated than that. So I've, I've kind of tried to <laughs> summarize the book in like two sentences there. Obviously, it's oversimplified it massively. But uh, is that a correct kind of broad overview summary of the approach that you take in the book? I think it is. The sort of point of departure for me was trying to reconcile an apparent contradiction that on the one hand, Ayup is really a site of striking continuity. Its importance, particularly its religious importance, has been and continues to be a really sort of core part of what makes Ayup Ayup. But on the other hand, I find sort of references to, you know, essences or an unchanged character or a sort of deeply rooted fixed identity of a place to be actually problematic both from a sort of conceptual point of view in terms of what academics do, but also problematic from a political point of view when it comes to explaining how it is that we tell the history of the world around us. So one of the things I try to do in the book is to sort of work between those two positions and take them both seriously, that on the one hand, yes, there are these sort of striking and really powerful continuities at work in Ayup. But on the other hand, we also need to be much more attentive to both forms of transformation and the practices of transmission through which our understanding of the past and our understanding of the place is transmitted over time. Now, this contested identity of Ayup as I was reading the book, it kind of reminded me that, that it's uh, almost a microcosm of Istanbul. 
because people have similar ideas actually more broadly about Istanbul as being this somehow religiously significant place with big historical resonance, you know, obviously the old Ottoman capital for centuries, the seat of the caliphate. And obviously that clashes with the reality in other ways of Istanbul as being this kind of hyper-modern, chaotic, morally questionable place and highly secular place in parts as well. In some ways, the most irreligious part of the country. So, you know, I suppose there on the one hand, you could see Ayup with its contested identity, with its complex identity. You can see Ayup as being a, almost a microcosm of Istanbul itself, actually. I, absolutely. I mean, I think it's one of the the things that drew me to the district and kind of drew me to thinking about the project and has really sort of been something that I try to come back to over the, the course of really a decade of visiting Ayup, working in Ayup, researching Ayup thinking about what makes this place such a sort of rich, complicated, contested site. And it's not simply sort of what happens in a very small district of a broader city, but the ways in which looking at Ayup closely, I think, gives us one point of entry into this much broader discussion of the contradictions and tensions that continue to play out in contemporary Istanbul. Now, as you say, the book is a, in parts a history of Ayup, but it's also a contemporary portrait, really. You describe spending years in Ayup, immersed in the area. So what did the research on that level involve? Yeah, so I started fieldwork in Istanbul. This comes out of my doctoral dissertation, which started in 2011. And so I arrived in 2011 and sort of at the time my Turkish was functional but not terribly good and was probably pretty pretty accented and did sort of a cursory tour of the district and sort of wandered into places and tried to figure out sort of I went to the mosque and sort of spent a little bit of time sitting in the mosque and then started to wander around some of the kind of streets and back alleyways right in that vicinity and chanced upon a couple of places that ended up being really formative for the kind of fieldwork that I undertook. And so one of them was little place immediately in the shadow of the minarets of the Mosque of Ayyub Sultan, a place that when I went was called the uh, Tefekkür Bacisi, the Garden of Contemplation. Uh, and as I came to realize, was sort of run as a community center, sort of community school by a religious community affiliated with the sort of teachings of Said Norsi and, you know, walked in and they said, oh, you know, welcome. What are you doing? What are you doing here? And I said, oh, I'm from the United States. I'm interested in learning about Ayup. And they said, well, first you need to say Ayup Sultan, which was sort of an education, opening education into that, the interesting tensions between those who say Ayup and those who say Ayup Sultan. And they said, oh, you, you're from the United States. Would you like to teach English? And I said, sure. And that sort of teaching English a couple times a week there to a rotating cast of students, usually elementary school students, sometimes middle school students, sometimes their parents, along with taking courses in Ottoman with, again, a, a wide range of people who would just come to the school and take weekly courses and learning how to read Ottoman Turkish. That became a really formative place for me to develop relationships with people in the district. Over time, I also, there was a bookstore right down the street that became another place where I became good friends and am still good friends with the person who worked in the bookstore at the time and would go and wander over there and sort of over the course of two years in Istanbul, built up a number of friendships and relationships, just became a sort of visible presence in the district, or at least in the, the couple of sort of the immediate vicinity of the mosque. And that building of relationships, I think, really helped 
me develop some of the insights that I think the, particularly the ethnographic sections of the book sort of come to demonstrate. The sense of Ayyub not simply as a side of instrumental of like, what do you think about Islam? What do you think about the politics of secularism? But instead to kind of have access to the complicated ways that people just sort of live in the district and think about history, think about religion, think about identity, and how all of that came together. The other thing I want to mention that I think is is worth thinking about is the really particular context of Turkey between 2011 and 2013. In many ways, I think the fieldwork would be very different if I went back today um, in the aftermath of the fallout between the Gulen movement and uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, especially following the 2016 coup attempt. I think the political context for you know a researcher who would, who was and is identified as a foreign researcher to come into that district and sort of explore some of the questions i think is quite different today than it was between 2011 and 2013 now to paint the picture you delve into the history of the neighborhoods the modern history of the neighborhood and you describe actually how Ayup is obviously filled with religious significance today but in the late ottoman and early republican decades it was actually a major center of industry with factories and workshops, particularly those involved in textiles production, lining the shore of the Golden Horn. And that is perhaps not the first thing that we think of when we think of Ayyub today, but uh, it does illustrate the fluid nature of the neighborhood, I thought. Absolutely. I mean, there's a, a really important history behind the industrialization of the Golden Horn. One of the dynamics that I think shapes the emergence of industrialization in the Golden Horn and not elsewhere is the fact that much of the shoreline was property associated with the imperial family. So in the 16th and 17th centuries, many of the sort of shoreline properties are deeded to or associated with figures of the imperial family and used as sort of pleasure palaces or sort of mansions, places that they could retreat from the heat of the city in other ways. And over time, the center of social life moves from the Golden Horn to the Bosphorus. But what is left behind is the land itself. And so what the state is able to do in the 19th century is to turn many of these properties into new factories. And two of the most notable are, of course, Feshane, which would later, um, under the Republic, become uh, known as Sumerbank. And so this is one of the first textile factories in the Ottoman Empire and becomes a really major part of the textile industry in the 20th century as well. And the other factory is a little ways down and is no longer there. It was known as Iplikane. Iplik in the sense of th the thread factory, I think, would produce a variety of thread and was, again, a really important part of the sort of economic and social life of the districts. And I've found bits and pieces. It's not something that probably emerges in the book as strongly as I wanted it to. But, you know, in talking to people today about their memories of AU, like people will remember in the 1950s and the 1960s, the ways in which the rhythms of working life, um, the the sound of the factory whistle, really sort of defined the lived experience of Ayup in a way that we don't really have access to today because all of those factories were bulldozed and removed beginning in the 1980s. Another period of bulldozing and destruction was the 1950s. The 1950s was a key decade of transformation uh, and, yes, destruction, which accompanied this rapid urbanization across Turkey, Istanbul, and specifically Ayup as well. So the Adnan Menderes administration really became renowned for public works to facilitate this urbanization, but that involved the destruction of many historic monuments, mosques, various landmarks, 
And that's indeed a paradox, actually, because Menderes was also associated with a return to religious conservatism and an embrace of traditionalism. So how did that decade of the 1950s, a decade of rapid transformation in Istanbul, how did that impact Ayyub specifically? So I think on the one hand, as you point out, like there is a return that's beginning in the 1940s, but really starts to accelerate in the 1950s, a sort of renewed publicness of Islam. So in a variety of ways, Islam becomes a much more public part of political, cultural life, urban life in a way that it hadn't been, say, if the 1920s and especially in the 1930s. But the paradox is um, people's relationship to mosques, spatial relationships to the mosque really starts to change in important ways. And what it happens across Istanbul is you see in many of the sort of uh, in front of many of the major mosques, um, one of the most notable ones is Yeni Jami in Eminönü. Basically, the space in front of the mosque, which historically in Ottoman times had often been occupied by markets that were part of the deeded vakif or foundation. Many of these that built environment is actually removed to create these sort of massive squares um, in front of the mosque. The massive squares in turn come to be sort of key transportation hubs. And then they're linked by a variety of broad boulevards um, all across the city. So this happens in Eminönü, but it also happens in Ayyub. And so what would happen is, to think a little bit about the topography of, of the center of Ayyub, Ayyub sits at the bottom of a couple of hills, sort of right along the water. And if you look above Ayyub, sort of in the direction of the city walls, you'll see sort of a tall ridge. And that ridge is roughly where Edirnekapu is. And so there was a, a broad boulevard the Edirne asphalt that would, you know, take you from Edirne Kapu back and head out west in the direction of Edirne, as the, as the name of the road suggests. And so what Menderes did is he built a massive boulevard from that ridge line down into the center of Ayyub, very much consistent with building projects that you would see in the rest of the city, such as Barbaros Boulevard in, in Besiktas as well. But absolutely contrary to sort of the Ottoman, the urban fabric of Ottoman Istanbul, which are often much more, you know, winding streets, a, pat, a sort of street pattern that follows the topography of the city. This is very much a, a big, broad boulevard that cuts straight down into the center of Ayyub. And as happened through in other places uh, across Istanbul, they created a square right next to the mosque of Ayyub Sultan. Um, so this square had been a market, a charsha, and you can still read the kitabe, the inscription on the mosque of Ayyub Sultan, and it will reference the the charsha that once sat in that location, and they level it. Um, and so that place, that square that's opened up in the 1950s comes to be a key transportation artery for you know where people would catch buses to head into sort of a further outlying districts. The road was further widened through a small street known as Oyunchak Chalaj Jaddese, which is a small street, the Toymaker Street, that sat right next, basically, again, in the shadow of the Mosque of Ayyub Sultan. And the boulevard cut through there, destroyed the shops on one side to widen it for traffic, and then connected that to a shoreline road that would then run back in the direction of central Istanbul and Eminönü in particular. A really fascinating part of the book is the 19 is when you deal with the 1980s. So you obviously talk about the the post 1980 military coup situation, and that was a period of uh, of change again because it uh, saw big shifts in the administration, obviously, of the country and, and specifically the urban environment. So we saw the introduction of a two-tier system of governance. Metropolitan municipalities were created and district municipalities 
were also systematized. And you describe that system being introduced and you talk about it, how uh, how the goal of that system, quote, was to shift authority for planning and development from the central authorities to local municipalities that would, in theory, be more responsive to their residents. And as part of that, in 1983, the Ayut municipality was one of more than 20 district municipalities created within this new two-tier system. And uh, you describe in the book how this shift in governance happened alongside a massive shift in Istanbul's urban economy. And that involved, obviously, privatization, the privatization of formerly state-owned enterprises and the systematic relocation of factories from Istanbul's central districts to its peripheries. And obviously that involved Ayup because Ayup uh, had, until that point, been quite a centre of industry, of factories, as we've mentioned. And they were all closed down during this process. Workshops, factories, warehouses were bulldozed under the, the mayor of Istanbul, Bedrettin Dalan, the first mayor of the newly reorganised Istanbul Metropolitan Municipality. And you describe how, quote, almost overnight, both sides of the Golden Horn were bulldozed and expropriated for municipal use while many of the formerly state-owned factories located along the waterway had already been solved as part of Turkey's economic liberalisation between 1980 and 1984, Dalan's urban interventions spelled the end of whatever workshops had survived. The industrialisation had a massive effect on Ayup, which to that point had been a largely working-class district, and one consequence of this shift was an increased emphasis on developing Ayup's potential as a tourist destination. So that was a really seismic shift. And it seems that that shift has continued really ever uh, right up till today, because uh, AUP today is really one of the key features of it is really this idea that it is uh, a center of tourism, religious tourism, uh, particularly local tourism. People go there during Ramadan. So could you just talk about that period of the 1980s? You know, how AUP shifted in that period from this kind of working class area of industry to the start of this shift towards tourism? Yeah, thanks for this question. So one place to to start is, as you point out, the, the reorganization of the municipal system. And in the case of Ayup, I think there's actually a really sort of striking history that there uh, is a planning office that's formed. Um, and a couple of people join that planning office very early on, coming from several backgrounds. One of them, and perhaps the most notable, is the architect Nezih Aldem, who was really at the time one of the most well, well-known and well-regarded architects working in, in Turkey um, and was himself born and raised in Ayup, from what I understand. And he comes to to work for this small little municipality that had just been reinvented and takes it upon himself and works with a sort of small group of recent architectural graduates, people like Hatice Fahrunisa Kara, Gülür Kalaifçi is another one, and Hülya Yalçen is the, the third. And they come to sort of be totally immersed in this question of how do they replan a different kind of Ayup. And it is a an effort to sort of seize the opportunity that's presented by the deindustrialization to kind of recover and restore an Ayup that is, in their view, a, a recovery of the Ottoman past. It is useful to remember, though, that their vision of sort of an Ottoman Ayup is not necessarily the ways in which the Ottoman past functions today. So I think, I mean, sort of contemporary 2023, visions of the Ottoman past have been much more tightly woven or interwoven with a particular understanding of Islam that I don't think was there in the 1980s. So this group of planners, architects, sets about 
really trying to, to, to build a new plan for managing AUP. They reach out to everybody that they can to sort of protect AUP civil architecture, along with its sort of religious buildings, the mosques, the medrasas, the tekkes, the, these kinds of things, and to really do everything that they can to keep the center of AUP as this really remarkable site of relatively well-preserved Ottoman urbanism. So that's happening on on one side, as you have this work of planning and restoration and sort of recovery. But then, as you point out, that there's also a, a changed political economy, urban political economy in, in early 1980s. And so AUP is trying to set, figure out, like, well, in what ways is the municipality going to be able to get money? In what ways is it going to be able to present itself to the world? In the 1980s, they do so in a variety of ways. I mean, they, again, look to Fesane. Um, it is briefly suggested as a museum of uh, textile and industry in the 1980s. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, Fesane actually gets seized upon as a possible site for Istanbul's new modern art museum. Um, it becomes the home of, I think, the second Istanbul biennial, and it's restored and it's sort of compared in some documents to the the new Tate Modern. And so they're looking to London and thinking about the ways that factory spaces are being converted into art spaces. And then it's really only then in the 1994, in that signal moment when the welfare party wins basically at all levels of the Istanbul municipality that you see a sort of renewed return to the Ottomans in a, in a different kind of way. All of which is to say that, you know, Istanbul in this moment, and Ayyub in particular, I think was sort of searching for a new kind of way to present itself, a new kind of way to generate income, a new kind of way to sort of configure an urban political economy in the sort of aftermath of really far-reaching deindustrialization. Yeah, and that's really interesting what you talk about there, how particularly in this decade of the 1980s, it was that was when a particular version or vision of the Ottoman past became dominant, really. And it kind of went hand in hand or it, it was going along in parallel with a particular revival or reimagining of Islam, as you say, and the development of political Islam, which obviously would burst onto the national scene in the 1990s. And obviously, a hallmark of that was a political shift that started at the local level with the winning of municipalities by the Refa Party or Welfare Party, obviously the precursor of today's AK Party. The Refa Party of Nejmetin Erbakan won the Ayyub municipality in 1994. So the district mayor of Ayyub then became a figure called Ahmet Gench. And obviously, that was uh, an election that also, of course, saw Recep Tayyip Erdogan winning as the Metropolitan Mayor of Istanbul as a whole in 1994. So obviously, a really significant year for the rise of political Islam. So could you just talk about that? You know, how significant was Ayyub in the rising Islamist movement at the time? And what form did that take? Ahmed Gench is this really fascinating figure. I remember I never actually talked to him or interviewed him in the in the context of my research, but he was sort of you know one of these key figures who was sort of always standing off in the background. And as somebody pointed out, I mean he was a really he was a neighborhood kid. He was somebody who had deep roots. His family had migrated to Ayub in probably the 1950s, 1960s, part of the the Black Sea migration that reshapes Istanbul more broadly and Ayub in particular. So he'd been born and raised in the district and really was in love with the Ottoman past. I mean, his mayoral administration was, I think, characterized in part by this really sincere attempt to recover and restore what he saw to be the sort of the true essence of the Ottoman past. 
And so when he comes to office in the ni- in 1994, and this is one of the, the reasons why I think it's important to actually start the story in 1984, is he finds a group of planners and architects who had already been working for a decade to develop a plan for AUB, but they didn't have the political support and they didn't have the financing from state authorities to make this possible. And so what he was able to do in very short order is because Refah, because Welfare won the Ayut municipality, they won the Istanbul Metropolitan Municipality, and they controlled some of the levers of government in Ankara itself. Suddenly, you had a, the ability to funnel money into restoration projects very, very quickly. And so what ended up taking place is Gensh using his authority to basically restore as many buildings as quickly as possible. And you know, because of the nature of the ways that restoration worked, many of these buildings ended up being places like Tekkez and Medreses. He was taken to task and criticized in um, the secular newspapers. And I, you know, quote an article written by the architect Oktay Ekinje, who was really sort of looking skeptically at this restoration project and saying, well, why is it that you're only restoring the quote unquote religious buildings when there's all this civil architecture? I mean, I think there was a religious dimension and there wasn't uh, a desire if you read what the AU municipality was presenting about its own work. There was a very real desire to restore these religious buildings as a way to critique their ostensible neglect under previous more secular administrations. But as one person who was involved in these projects pointed out to me, there was also a very simple logistical reason, which was restoring civil architecture in Istanbul is notoriously difficult. It's caught up in all sorts of questions of inheritance law. You need to get permissions. You need to get funding. And it was just a lot simpler to target many of the religious buildings. And so uh, Ahmed Gensh, along with his minister of culture, the municipality's minister of culture, someone named Irfan Chalishan, go about basically developing this whole program of restoration and this whole program of cultural education and cultural promotion, where Ayyub comes to be reconfigured as this sort of land of sultans, land of aristocrats, in a way that was quite different than, again, Ayyub from over much of the 20th century, in which Ayyub, because it was a working class district, was seen to be a little bit worn down. As one of my interlocutors put it, Varosh, um, a kind of like marginal location. And suddenly in this moment of the 1990s, Ayyub sort of comes to acquire a new prominence in the sort of cultural, imagined cultural geography of Istanbul, where it comes to be the site of, oh, it's the site of Islam, a site of Ottoman magnificence. Um, and people start to come there and it starts to become a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy as people come to look at Ayyub more and more, you know, the municipality is able to say, oh, look at all the people who are coming here. And it becomes a sort of self-reinforcing cycle where Ayyub comes to be a, a site of the Ottoman past, a place of the Ottoman past, in a new and rather fascinating way. Now, Ayup's current identity, as you say there, is in many ways as a centre of leisure and tourism, particularly religious or spiritual tourism. And that's particularly the case during Ramadan. And when you visit on a night during Ramadan, you do get that sense of evocative old traditions almost coming to life. It's quite an enjoyable evening to go to Ayyub during Ramadan, even as a, a non-believer. And you have a chapter towards the end of the book on this aspect of Ayyub, this particular character of Ayyub in this day and age, and some of the tensions or contradictions resulting from it. So what can we take from that? I think we can take a, a couple of things. I mean, Ramadan in Ayyub is as um, you know, it's it's a different kind of thing, as uh, one of the slogans put it. And it at the same time brings a lot of the tensions of public Islam to the fore. 
So even though Ramadan is an experience that is shared by all Muslims, the experience of fasting, the experience of the month, the experience of this intensified connection to the divine, this intensified connection to the Muslim world more broadly, is shared between and across a wide range of Muslims. It's also a month in which tensions of class in particular play out. And so this is something that I observed. So what had happened in 2012 is the municipality had done fairly little to sort of reorganize or police how people were using the central square in front of the Mosque of Ayyub Sultan. And it came to be a key site where people who lived in the district, often working class, would bring their meals down to celebrate iftar, the breaking of the fast, right in front of the mosque. And so they would sort of, on the the marble, the, the square that had been repaved in marble, they would just lay out blankets or mats and kind of have a whole series of small dishes to be able to celebrate, to share their meal right in the immediate vicinity of the mosque um, as soon as the call to prayer was was given. This use of the square provoked all sorts of debates and controversy because at the same time, all of the restaurants in the vicinity of the of that central square were also selling their own Ramadan meals. But these were prefixed meals that were often quite expensive, at least relative to the or, or beyond the reach of the people who were coming to, you know, bringing their their meals and to eat in the square. And so it kind of brought to the fore this interesting debate between, you know, people who had the means to enjoy a, you know, well-catered, well-provisioned Ramadan meal with multiple courses and dates shipped in from Saudi Arabia and, you know, special Zemzem water that's brought in as well in a in a special little cup. And again, the, a a group of people who are largely working class who are just having small modest meals. It provoked a, a bunch of debate in 2012 about inappropriate use of the square, the the problems that were posed for traffic and trash. And people in the square would often be in the way of later prayers that would take place at night, where because there are too many people who come to the mosque, they would use the uh, the square in front of the mosque as a auxiliary prayer space, which was difficult to set up when people were, you know, sharing their meals there. And so in 2013, the mayor at the time, somebody named Ismail Kavunju, had heard the criticism of the previous year, knew he was heading into an election cycle in 2014, and created a much more elaborate set of events in the square itself. So this involved building fiberglass arcades along one section that were modeled on the arcades that you find in the Ottoman arcades built around the Kaaba in, in Mecca, as well as building a big stage in a, in a separate part that would host a variety of events and lectures and speakers and uh, musical performances over the course of the month. Again, some people found this to be a much better use of the square. They found it to be more organized, you know, something that provided a appropriate atmosphere to Ramadan. But then others looked at this as a kind of like spectacle and empty show. They said, you know, what kind of expense is this when Ramadan is supposed to be about an internal one's internal observance? One of the reasons I like that chapter and one of the things that I think is valuable about that chapter is it really helps us to understand not simply debates between sort of religious and secular ways of life in Istanbul, although I think those debates are important to follow, but debates between different versions of being Muslim, which, as I try to show in the chapter, have a lot to do with how does one think of sort of public consumption? How does one think of one's relationship to one's neighbors? How does one think of this question of urban social order? And so I think the book or that chapter in particular does an interesting job at pulling out some of the tensions that do emerge in this sort of intensified experience that is Ramadan in Ayyub. That was Tim Orham and many thanks to him for joining for episode 210.
Remember, we do need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going, and you can give that support by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Membership gets you a 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3, or £2.50 per episode. Do also rate the podcast or write a positive review wherever you listen. Spread the word, give us a shout out on your social media accounts. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter or X, Instagram or Facebook accounts or all of them. Follow me, William Armstrong, on Blue Sky. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more, and they also publish high quality original on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.